0: My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. As Billy said, in the same way, if you are here for the first time, so glad you're here. It's such a pleasure to have you with us as we gather as a family to worship Jesus this morning. What we've been doing over the last several weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 looking at the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the main points we've been driving home throughout the whole series is that the resurrection is not just a past event that happened to Jesus. It's also a future event that will one day happen to us when Jesus returns. But it's not just a future event. It's also the thing that is meant to shape our lives in the present. We've been talking how throughout the New Testament, whether it's here in 1 Corinthians or throughout the New Testament, whenever the apostles talk about the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just the fact that he came back from the dead, but that his resurrection from the dead proves his right to rule over everything. That ultimately, that is what gives him the right to be the king of all creation. So last week, we looked at the fact that living in light of the resurrection doesn't mean that we try to make our lives easy and comfortable. But it also doesn't mean that we try to make our lives as hard as possible. It just means that we follow our risen Lord wherever he takes us, whether that's easy or hard. Because sometimes our king is not afraid to ask us to walk hard paths because he walked on himself. What we're going to do, we're going to watch a short video in just a second. Many of you guys know the Martin family, Jerry and, and Katie and their, their five kids, and especially you've probably heard a lot about their daughter Faith recently. We've been praying for her a lot this past year. And most of you also know that about a little over a month ago now, she, she died. She went home to be with Jesus after a second battle with leukemia. Uh, before all that happened, earlier this summer, we had wanted to put together a video with Jerry and Katie just to the, give them a chance to share what it was like for them to walk through this hard trial knowing that our king is good, knowing that he was there with them, and that he didn't want them to walk alone. So it's about five minutes, so let's just turn our attention to the screens and we'll watch this together.
1: Well, I mean, we kind of came into their community group um, about a year ago. Um, it's funny because after this happened, all the guys had come over to pray for me, and I told them, I said, "You don't know what you got into with us." I said, "You," I said, "If you if you want to you want to bow out right now, it's okay. I, I understand." But I knew they wouldn't. But God's just given us a lot. Probably about a week and a half after Faith was born, it was confirmed that she had Down syndrome. She had a couple of holes in her heart. So at six months old, she had open heart surgery. She did um, pretty good through that and uh, we were doing good. And about three and a half years old, uh, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And we went through our treatment of the two and a half years. And a few weeks before she turned 10 years old, she was uh, diagnosed again that leukemia had come back. She had a relapse. The first time she was diagnosed with leukemia, we didn't really reach out to anybody. We just um, did our own thing, went to our weekly treatments, and um, pretty much kept to ourselves. You know, it's more of like the mentality of the country. You know what? I can do this myself. I don't need anybody else. That has crept into the church. That is not the way that God designed the body to work. Knowing how hard it was the first time, when it came the second time, Instead of kind of like, oh, we're okay, we can handle this, we shared our needs and our desire to have people around us and pray for us. As we bear one another's burdens, it's like this weight of this diagnosis is like on our shoulders and it's like, it's weighing me down. And, you know, you have these other people that come around you, they put their shoulder up underneath that burden and they'll pick it up with you. That's how the body's supposed to work. That's how we bear one another's burdens. You know, I need people like that. Our community group has been awesome, and our church body is such a huge blessing to me. I am so grateful for each one of those people. I love the church. I love this body that we have. It's, it's hard to to possibly think about your, your child dying, but knowing that God is still in control. Um, Todd had preached a few weeks ago about, you know, do you want to know God at any cost? And... Uh, you know I thought about that because that was kind of when faith was in the middle of this does God want to deepen our relationship with him by by taking faith you know it's not easy to say um, and I don't know if it's gonna be easy to do if that's what God has for us I mean I know the goal is that people know who Jesus is that's what it is and if he's gonna use this he'll, I know he'll use it for his glory you know I know he will he, he, he does anyway you know he's, he's faithful and he, to do what he says where uh, we just want to be faithful. I want to. I want to hear God so, just tell me, "Well done," you know, at the end of my life. And you know, even Todd, was preaching. He was saying something about, like, if, why why people die prematurely or whatever. It's like you know, maybe maybe God just wanted to see them sooner. Well, the only way we get to see God sooner is if He takes us home. And I I kind of that kind of gave me a little bit of a piece. It's like maybe Jesus wants to just. He wants faith right now. Maybe he doesn't want to wait until she's older. Maybe he wants to see her right now. You know, so... I don't know. I love you. Sorry. we <laughs> yeah. are doing good. We are doing good. So, yeah. But, you know, it's been... definitely been an interesting ride. I no doubt about that. But I'm glad that we have other people that are around us. Give her a goober. Oh. Is there anything you want to tell him? No. Come on. <laughs> tell him some stuff. He is king. He is the king. That is correct. He made us. He did make us. That is right, Faith. He did. How much do you love me? Much. How much? All, uh, oh, much. How much? All, uh, oh, much. All, uh, oh, much. Do you love church? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hey, I will all <laughs> oh, my soul. All no. my soul.
0: Two verses. No.
1: My soul. Oh, my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never.
0: Jerry, Katie, thank you guys for letting us walk through this with you. Thank you so much. It has been an honor. And to see, okay, seriously, if you're somebody in here who, who you have struggled to accept the idea of Christianity because you wonder how God could let stuff like that happen, go talk to Jerry and Katie. Talk to someone who's been there, not just hypothetically thought about it, but been there and gone, he's still good. I know he's good. I'm not running from him. I'm running to him. He is the ever-present help in trouble. Faith's memorial service is going to be next Saturday at 11 o'clock in this room. Jerry and Katie would love for y'all to be here. It's going to be, it's going to be a great time. We're going, to, we're, we're going to celebrate God's goodness in her life. We're going to mourn the fact that, that she's gone and that death is still that enemy that needs to be overcome. But we're also going to celebrate in the hope that one day when Jesus returns, because she believed in Jesus, faith will be resurrected in a body that neither leukemia nor Down syndrome nor even death can touch again. Amen? So come with us next Saturday. I better grab this. That's what we've been talking about this whole month. The resurrection. That's our hope. What we're going to talk about this morning, even more specifically, is that idea of the resurrection body. What is that going to be like? What's it going to be like when we're raised from the dead? So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some guys coming down that would love to put one in your hands. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be starting in verse 35 today. But as we get into that, let me just say, there, there's a couple things going on in this passage. Number one, as Paul is going to describe for us what this resurrection body is going to look like, it's not like he has some anatomical chart up on the wall and he's pointing out, it's not this crystal clear picture of what's going to look like. Uh, I was talking with Todd earlier this week and he said it's almost like, like when you're a kid and the present is already under the Christmas tree and it's got your name on it, but it's still two weeks till Christmas. It's not time to open it up and see what's inside, but you can pick it up. And you can hold it, and you can kind of get some idea of what it is or isn't just by looking at it from the outside. You can go, okay, well, it's probably not a bowling ball, or, but what could it be? Maybe you, if, if you sneak it, you can shake it and try to hear it. And I still remember to this day that Legos make a distinctive sound even in the box. You know exactly what it is. And it's fun because my boys are so into Legos now too. So you can shake it and go, I know it's Legos, but what kind? I don't know. That awaits the time when we get to unwrap this thing and see what it is. So as we even look at this resurrection body this morning, let's remember, we're, we're the kids sitting under the tree holding it going, it's not time to open it yet, but boy, do I want to. Boy, do I want to find out what's in this. The second thing we have to understand as we get into this is that if you've been coming throughout our series of the last year or so 1 through 1 Corinthians, Typically what Paul does is he will take a topic, usually something that they have introduced in the first place, and said, Hey Paul, what about this? And first what he does is he explains how they've misunderstood it. Then he re explains it in light of the gospel so that they'll know how to live. Here at the end of the book, he flips it around. Instead of first explaining what they've misunderstood, he takes the first 28 verses of this chapter and he says, let me explain the gospel to you. Let me explain to you why the resurrection is so absolutely essential to the gospel. Because not only is it fact Jesus did rise from the dead, but he did it according to the scriptures. That's what God said would happen, and it is an indispensable part of God's plan to bring everything together under God's rule. Now that you see why it's so important and why there's no good news without it, let's talk about why you don't want to believe it. He flips it around here. And that's what he does kind of in verses 29 and following. He says, okay, let me explain to you why you don't want to do this. And so in verse 35, where we're going to start this morning, he starts and he comes with these questions that he knows that they're going to ask at this point. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This question seems to have been at the core of the Corinthians not just questioning of the resurrection, but their aversion to it. Why they didn't think it was a good thing and why they didn't want it. It wasn't just a, oh, I wonder what it's going to be like. It's like, how is, we know what happens to these bodies when they die. We we know that they decompose and they turn to dust and that's why we put them in the ground. Why would we want that to come back to life? How is that going to come back to life? It's almost the idea, I remember at one time sitting and having lunch nearby with somebody and somebody heard us talking about the Bible and came and sat down to us as a young kid and he's like, hey, um, he started going on this whole thing about how he thinks there's going to be a zombie apocalypse and how he's planned out that, that if there is one, he's going to go to Costco because he's like, if I can hold myself up inside Costco, I'm going to have everything I could possibly need plus a lot of stuff that I never thought I needed until I walked in there and that's where I'll be when this thing happens. And he's like, because that's what the Bible says, right? It says that the dead will rise. We in our culture have this weird psycho fascination with corpses coming back to life. The Corinthians didn't want a zombie apocalypse. They were going, we don't want that. We want those in the ground. We want those to stay there. We don't want this. So why should we want the dead to be raised? So Paul comes in verse 36 and he says this, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body, as He has chosen, and to each seed, or each kind of seed, its own body. He says, you're thinking about this all wrong. What's resurrected is not the same exact physical body, but it is closely connected to it. He uses these analogies, he has three different analogies that he builds out in this this passage. And the first one is this idea of a seed and a plant. He says that's kind of what the resurrection is like. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Just like when you plant a seed in the ground, the plant that comes from it is greater and bigger and usually bears no actual resemblance to the seed that you put in the ground. But it is connected to the seed because that's where it came from. That's what he's saying. He talks about this idea where it goes into the ground and dies. Well, we, we know now that like, a, a seed doesn't, like, it doesn't actually die when you put it in the ground. But that was the conception at that time. You have to understand, Paul's not giving us a biology lesson here. He's not in life science class like, saying, here, let me tell you how the seed functions. What he's doing is he is taking a common understanding of the way that seeds worked at that time. And he's saying, let me use that to build an analogy in regard to the resurrection." That's actually, Jesus did the same thing. In John chapter 12, Jesus likens his death to a seed that grows into the ground and dies so that it can bear much fruit. His idea in building this analogy that we've got to make sure we don't stretch too far, he says you plant the seed in the ground and what comes from it is what God designed to come from it. He chose, he gives it the body that he has chosen. That's Paul's main point. He says, you've rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection because it doesn't fit with your cultural story. But the problem is you forgot to take God into account in your thinking. That's why he starts out with almost this offensive thing at the very beginning of verse 36 and says, you foolish person. He's not just trying to be like one of those like pundits on the news channels where he's just like, oh, you're dumb because you don't believe what I believe. What he's saying is he's wanting to help us understand what foolishness is. When you look at the biblical definition of foolishness, it's not just the failure to think well or to think appropriately. It's not just the failure to make sense. It's not just being some off-the-wall, court jester, village idiot kind of person. At the core, the biblical idea of foolishness is the failure to take God into account in your thinking. And not just to take him into account, but to make him foundational to your thinking. You see this reflected like in Psalm 14, verse 1, where it says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But on the other hand, like in Proverbs 7, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. That's the starting point. So he says you're being foolishness because you can't see past this perishable body that goes into the ground to see to the God who made that body and everything else in the first place. And if he made everything out of nothing in the first place, using nothing but his own all-powerful word to speak everything into existence, does it really seem so impossible that he could bring new life out of death? But Paul doesn't just argue on the hypothetical sense of what could God possibly do. He turns our attention to what God has already done. Look at verse 38. God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each seed its own kind of body. He says for not all flesh is the same but there is one kind for humans another for animals another for birds and another for fish there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory Paul saying Look at all the different types of bodies, the different types of flesh that God has already made. Look at all the different kinds of glory that He has already put into His creation. Everything doesn't look the same. There are different types of flesh. And not everything reflects God's glory in the same way or to the same degree. The only way to account for all that variety is that God chose to make it that way. That's what He says in verse 38. God gives it a body as He has chosen He determines the type of body and the degree of glory that each thing He has that He made according to His purpose. He gives them a body that is perfectly tailored to the environment in which He existed that thing to function. And according to how He designed that one thing to function within the whole of creation. And so He says, based upon that in verse 42, that's what it's like with the resurrection. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Each of these three analogies, the seed in the body, the different types of flesh, the different kinds of glory, they give us a glimpse of what this resurrection body is going to be like. It's like picking up the present under the tree and shaking it and holding it and weighing it to try to get an idea of what it's going to be like. He says that this resurrection body will be connected in some way to these perishable bodies, but it will be greater, just like a plant is greater than the seed that it comes from. He says that this resurrection body will be a different kind of physical body, a more glorious body, because it's designed to inhabit a different type of world, a different and more glorious world than this current one, but one that is connected to this current world. It's a resurrected body fit for a resurrected world. How is it different? He he, he he comes back into that second part of verse 42 and he says, okay, let me build on this seed plant analogy a little bit more. And he says this, okay, beginning of verse 42, so it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He builds this comparison. He says, the body that dies, that goes into the ground, it's perishable. It's dishonorable. It's, it's, in, it's almost this embarrassing, undignified way in which death is just unpleasant and gross. It's dishonorable. It's sown in weakness. That's the, that's the essence of it. The body becomes too weak to even maintain breath. It's sown a natural body. But then on the flip side, when he talks about the body that's to come, that is raised, just as the first body was perishable, this one's imperishable. Just as the first body is sown in that dishonorable state of death, it is raised in glory, greater glory than it had at the height of youth and health when it was young, when it was healthy. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And then he says this. He says, it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. Imagine being one of those Greek-thinking Corinthians. You hear that and you go, wait, what? A spiritual body? Oh yes, he says, if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. At this point, Paul brings back one of the Corinthians' favorite words, spiritual, pneumaticon. It's the one we talked about a ton when we were back in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Remember that? the corinthians fascination and even confusion about who or what was spiritual what does it mean to be spiritual he brings this concept of spiritual back into this discussion here in chapter 15 for a very important reason you see the corinthians knew from the gospel that paul had preached to them that because of Jesus' death and resurrection and their belief in that gospel they had this new spiritual life from the holy spirit but just like we do today They struggled to understand how that was connected to this present physical life and even what it's supposed to look like in the future. So he says, okay, let's talk again about what it means to be spiritual. It seems that what they had done, in in a way, is they had taken elements of their Greek cultural story that we've been talking about throughout the series, and they brought it in here to help them make sense out of this whole resurrection thing. According to Greek thought at the time, these bodies... And indeed this entire physical world is distorted and flawed and it's untrustworthy. It's like living in a fun house all your life. Everything is meant to be a little off kilter and distorted so you can't get a true sense of things. They believe that our spirits, that internal non-physical part of us, the true part of ourselves they would say, what it really needs is to be freed from its captivity to these distorted bodies and this distorted world in order to enter into the undistorted, true, clear, trustworthy, non-physical spiritual realm. Does that make sense? So the Corinthians, it seems what they did was they knew just enough about the biblical story and the Greek story to be really dangerous. To put the two of them together in a way that really threw them off kilter. They saw the new life that they had in the Holy Spirit as the fulfillment of that Greek cultural story. Our spirits will escape this captivity to these flawed bodies and in fact this has already begun we're spiritual now that spiritual life has already begun within us so therefore you see throughout this book they're rustling to understand so what does it mean that we're still in these bodies if we're still in these messed up bodies but we need to get out of these then maybe what we do with this body doesn't really matter anymore because we have this new spiritual life within us Who cares if we eat food that's sacrificed to idols? It's just food for these physical bodies, and that's not really who we are anymore. We're about to escape these bodies. It's like married couples going, man, should we even have sex anymore? Because that's just these physical bodies. What do we do? And in the end, we're just going to put these bodies off and enter into that clear non-physical realm in the first place to correct the way that the Corinthians had combined and confused the biblical story with their cultural story. Paul brings back this phrase, and he uses it as like an oxymoron, something that would have been totally poral op- poral opposite. polar opposites. That's what I'm saying. Polar opposite, opposites. He says, there will be a spiritual body. He repeats it. If there's a natural body, there will be a spiritual body. That would have been like two magnets with the poles reversed. Trying to, they're like, Wait, these don't stick together. These, and Paul's going, you've got to flip around your thinking you got to flip around. These things are not as, as opposed to each other as you think. Paul is saying here, in no uncertain terms, that the ideal eternal state for those who follow Jesus is in a resurrected physical body, not as a disembodied spirit. The new life that has begun in us now is not going to be completed when we're released from these bodies, but when we are re embodied or literally reincarnated, re fleshed, into bodies that I would say are even more real and even more spirit empowered than what we experience internally now. In fact, this is, Paul is, is introducing a concept here that he develops a lot more fully in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he goes so far as to refer to these physical bodies as tents, temporary dwellings, because what we're hoping for is not to stay in a tent, but to be brought into a building, a permanent physical body. If you flip over really quickly into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at verse 4 really quickly. Paul says this, he says, For while we were, are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's wanting to correct for the Corinthians. You think that the spiritual life that you have through God's Spirit now guarantees your escape from this body one day. What I'm telling you is that the Spirit of God who lives within you now is the guarantee not that you'll just escape this body, but that you'll move from the tent into the permanent dwelling, into the resurrected body that God designed for you to have. Both in 1 Corinthians 15 and here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is driving home the point for the Corinthians that we need to hear just as much. Jesus didn't come to fulfill our cultural story. He came to fulfill the biblical story. Let me say that again. He didn't come to fulfill our hopes and dreams of what we think we want him to do. He came to fulfill what God already said he was going to do and for the purpose that God said he was going to do it. If we adopt a Greek idea that this world was bad from the start, which is what they believe, creation was essentially bad, then we would need to escape from it. But if instead we understand what the Bible teaches, that this world and indeed our bodies were created by God to be good, even very good, like he says at the end of Genesis 1, and if we're the ones who are responsible for why this world and our bodies have gone bad, then the answer isn't to escape from them, but for them to be redeemed. Does that make sense? So make sure... That our views of the resurrection and even our views of this present world and our present bodies are rooted in the right story. Paul makes this even clearer because he, he comes right from here in the very next verse and he returns to comparing Jesus with the first man, Adam. Remember what story of humanity Jesus fits into, the biblical one. In verses 21 and 22, he's already talked with us about Jesus in comparison to Adam. And he talks about Adam, who, he was the one through whom death came into the world. Because of Adam's disobedience, death came into the world. But that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he overcomes Adam's disobedience and brings life to those who are with him. So in verses 21 and 22 of this chapter, the comparison is between Adam and Jesus and death and life. Does that make sense? Here, though, In verse 45, the comparison isn't death and life, it's the comparison is between one type of life and a greater type of life. That make sense? Look what happens. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the creation account of Adam, where it says that God formed him out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. Adam was given life by God. But look what he says about Jesus, the second Adam or the last Adam. He became a life-giving spirit. Adam was given life by God, Jesus is one who gives life. Does that make sense? He says he became a life-giving spirit. And from here, we got, we got to talk for a second because that one could trip us up for a little bit in our thinking. You could look at that and almost go, okay, okay so Jesus died. And he, he became a man. He was born as a baby. He grew up. He lived his perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again in glory. And then according to this verse, he became a spirit. Maybe Maybe what happens is that after Jesus rose again and ascended into heaven, he somehow transformed into the Holy Spirit, that this Holy Spirit is Jesus. And that's where we have to be careful for a second, because that can lead us into a false teaching that's been around the church for generations called modalism, which basically means that God's a shapeshifter. He's like a, he's like a, a superhero with an alter ego, where he can, he can change costumes or change personalities between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit based upon what any situation needs at any given time. That's not true. That's not what we see of God. The doctrine of the Trinity is much different from that. The doctrine on the Trinity, on the other hand, states that each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are distinct from one another, but are so inseparably divided or united with each other that they they can't be separated. The Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and the Son, but they are so indivisibly united that throughout the New Testament... The Holy Spirit is referred to interchangeably as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Just, there's, a, there's a passage actually I think that makes, makes this clear in actually Romans chapter 8 where you see the Trinity in, on display in this really cool way. Check this out. Oh, I don't know what happened on the bottom. This is Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11. Here's what Paul says. You, however, talking about those who are followers of Jesus, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, oh, there he is. He's referred to as the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, whoa, okay, so, Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ is in us. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There's a whole lot going on here, but you see, do you see each distinct member of the Trinity expressed in this? But expressed in a way that shows that they are connected and united in a way that none of our human relationships can even get close to. The Holy Spirit who lives within us is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of Christ to the sense that He can even say that it is Christ who lives within us. But the Spirit who lives within us is the one who raised Christ from the dead. And look at the promise at the very end of that. If the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead is living within you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. What's the hope of this passage? Future physical life in a perfected spiritual body. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about here. Paul's point in both of those passages is clear. The spiritual life that the Corinthians were so fascinated by is only accessible through Jesus. But just as this Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, so it must be with us. He will also raise us from the dead. This life-giving Spirit is already at work within us. That's why it says there in verse 10, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, although the body is dead because of sin. The life-giving Spirit is already at work within us even while these bodies are still falling apart. But that's not the end. That's just the start. The hope of the Gospel is that the fully spiritual life will be fully realized in us when even these bodies are renewed. What could he says in verse 47? Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 if you change. In verse 47, Paul says this, The first man, speaking of Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And Then he ends with this astounding promise. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven see that the first man adam made from the dust and that's what we are too just as was the man of dust so are also are those who are of the dust but just as we even now have borne the image of the man of dust adam we're made with the same types of bodies that adam had so now jesus in his resurrected glory the promises what he has become in his resurrection what his body has become in his resurrection We will share in that. I don't know what it looks like when you unwrap that present on Christmas morning, but man, I want to know what that looks like. Now, some of you might notice in your Bibles there's a footnote on verse 49 about how you could even translate that last verse differently. It could either be the promise that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven or almost read like a command that let us bear the image of the man of heaven. There's kind of a way in which the Greek in which it could go either way. And the question we have is, is Paul promising what will happen to us or commanding us with something that we need to do? It would, it would seem weird if somehow what Paul says is, okay, just like right now we look like Adam, we need to make ourselves look like Jesus in his resurrected glory. That wouldn't make sense because what we're going to see next week in the very next passage is we can't make this happen. This doesn't happen until the last trumpet sounds and Jesus returns and the dead are raised imperishable. So Paul can't be commanding us to make this happen in our lives. But I think what he's doing, he's commanding us to put our hope in the right place. Just like he said to the Corinthians, don't hope that Jesus is going to fulfill your Greek hope to get out of this body and float as some sort of spirit. That's not what Jesus came to do. Attach your hope to the right story. Hope in that. Paul's looking at them and he, at the very end of his discussion, it's like he looks at me and he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you're going to hope in. This is what you're going to put your desire in and longing for. Don't keep trying to chop up this biblical story to make it into nice chunks that fit into your cultural story of what you think is going to happen, which we do just as much as, as the Corinthians did. The biblical story stands on itself. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really did rise from the dead, then we can trust what he said he is going to do and why he said he would do it. That's what this passage is about. Paul gives us a glimpse of what this wrapped up Christmas present might look like someday. Of what this resurrection body is going to look like and why it's going to look like that. The question of when, however... That really waits for next week. That's what we'll look at in next week's passage. it's amazing. Because when Christmas morning comes, if you will, when we finally get to unwrap this, it's not just going to... I mean, this is like the ultimate Christmas morning. When when the angels cry out this time, they're not going to cry out, a Savior has been born. They're going to cry out, the Savior has returned. They're going to cry out that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever that point oh man there won't be a mystery to this anymore but just as currently we bear the image of the man of dust we will bear the image of the man of heaven with that in mind the way that i'd like to close is with a greater understanding now i'd love to read this passage back over us and ask you the question is this the story that you're hoping in Or are you in some way looking at what Jesus did and saying, hey, maybe that can work with what I really want? The reality is, whatever we see as the biggest problems in our lives shape the kind of solution that we look for. And in many ways, following Jesus is the realization that, Jesus, not only are you the solution to the problems that I see in my life, but you're also the solution to the ways I've misunderstood the problems in my life. That what he does is he comes and says, hey, look, everything that's going on, I understand it better than you do. I understand how it fits into the big picture better than you do. So therefore, the solution that I'm bringing, the kingdom that I'm bringing, it is ultimately what you want. Even if it sounds totally oxymoron, spiritual body, why would we want that? Put your hope in this story. Grow yourself into this story. And your hopes will be attached to the right thing. So let me read this. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. You failed to take God into account in your thinking. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own kind of body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. Root your hope in the right story. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you give us a glimpse of what it is that you've come to do? All of us in here, whatever part we're at in our own journey, in our own relationship with you, whether that hasn't even really started yet or whether we've been walking with you for years and decades, The reality is, we need to see more of you. We need to understand more of why you've come and why you died and rose again and why you're coming again. We want, I mean, you taught us that, Jesus. You taught us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Far too often, we have contented ourselves with a hope that one day we will go to heaven when we die. And while we have that hope, and that's beautiful, that you promised that if we're absent from this body, we're present with you, Lord Jesus. You told the thief on the cross that today he would be with you in paradise, but you told us far more about what's going to happen when you come back, what that resurrected eternal life is going to look like. Would you help us to put our hope there even more than we put our hope in just what happens when we die? We want you to come, Lord Jesus. We want your name to be made holy. We want your kingdom to come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Would you do that? That's your plan. That's what you said you would do. And we just want to acknowledge we want it to. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.